Programming notes for the week of May 15th, 2022. As mentioned previously, we are moving Data Mesh Radio to two interview episodes a week. This was based on feedback from listeners about it just being too much content, and also from it just being a ton of work to put out that much uh, content as well on my side. This is also the last week of extended bottom line upfront summaries attached to the episodes themselves. There will still be shorter bottom line upfront summaries, but the goal is for those to be somewhere in the three to four minute range at most. Uh, the episode summaries on these programming notes episodes will still be longer, but it was starting to be, you know, 10 plus minute summaries at the start of a 50 to 60 minute interview. And I think you're going to learn a lot more from the guests than you will from me. So I think that is a good way to still share um, the more extended summaries as well as there's a lot in the show notes, but um, that at the start of the episode, it isn't just me talking for the first 10 to 12 minutes or anything. So that's going to be starting next week that we're going to be doing that. If you want to share what you want from the show, because these are, again, feedback from listeners, please do. There are links in the show notes to, to get in touch. As always, you can join the Patreon if you want to get episodes early. The Patreon is a signal that people can use to show they want more data mesh content focused on practitioners. There's very little content out there for practitioners. And I think part of that is because the practitioners are being relatively silent about what content they want. Uh, you know, there are some practitioners, obviously, that are coming on the show or that are doing other content themselves, but practitioners aren't specifically, you know, people that are already bought in and are trying to do data mesh. We're just not seeing enough people say what exact content they, they want and kind of push the potential content producers to go make that. So this week's episodes on Monday, it's going to be episode number 76, a skeptic's view of data mesh and learning your data product ABCs, which is an interview with Tim Gasper at data.world. So, uh, and Tim Casper is also of catalog and cocktails podcast fame. We talked about some skeptics pushbacks against data mesh and, and what is valid of those and somewhat what really isn't. We also discussed uh, the ABCDE framework for data products Tim and team came up with at data.world. On Tuesday, it's episode 77, Why Do Data Warehouse Fans Fear Data Mesh So Much? Mesh Musings number 15. So this has uh, some overlap with, with Tim's episode. I, I didn't realize that when I was kind of uh, planning out things, but uh, there seems to be uh, a decently sized group of people who are really big into the enterprise data warehouse side that really, really have some issues with data mesh. I tried to lay out their thoughts and challenges as far as I understood them or have seen. And while I think some are are valid in that it's it's, you know, these are legitimate challenges, but a lot of them, the pushbacks are just trying to find pushbacks. So uh, I think that will be one that's a little bit spicy, but I think it'll also be interesting for a lot of folks. And it can be helpful if you're getting into a conversation with them. On Friday, it is episode number 78, Minimum Viable Data Mesh, which is an interview with Paul Andrew at Avanade. Uh, Paul shared his thoughts on why proof of concepts rarely work with something like data mesh and his concept around what is the minimum viable data mesh. You know, how much do you really need to 
do? How much do you need to put in, in place to say, can you actually test if you can do data mesh, right? That that proof of concept is typically not around doing data mesh. It might be a, a specific use case. So what is the minimum viable work you need to do? How, how much do you need to put in to actually test if you can do data mesh if you're ready for this? So I think you'll get a lot out of these. Let's jump to the summaries for the two interview episodes this week. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Tim Gasper, VP of product at Data.World and the co-host of the Catalog and Cocktails podcast. We covered two main topics, a skeptic's view of data mesh and Tim and the Data.World's team's ABCs of data products framework. Let's start with the skeptics side. So skeptics have a few main pushback on data mesh in Tim's view. First one being data mesh isn't for everyone based on size or kind of complexity of what what data you're dealing with. The second one being tooling doesn't exist. Is that yet or it will, won't exist to make it easy for domains to easily take over data ownership and just in general to do data mesh. Number three, there shouldn't be anyone who quote unquote owns the data. Number four, there aren't enough case studies out there yet of people doing data mesh, especially people who have been successful. Number five, not clear guidance on how to handle the combination of data across domains. You know, how does that ownership work? And number six, data mesh will create data silos. So let's go down the list one by one and talk about kind of some of the points Tim had made, as well as some things that in general are kind of coming up in the data mesh community as to kind of pushbacks against these pushbacks. <laughs> so the first one, data mesh isn't for every organization, depending on size, number of domains, data slash problem space complexity. You know, Tim said this, I've said this probably 30 plus times on the podcast so far. Jamak has said this, literally almost everybody who is pro data mesh, who's a data mesh advocate has said this other than maybe some vendors trying to sell to people doing data mesh. This is one of the myths of data mesh, that it's designed for everyone. Data mesh isn't for everyone. If you don't have these problems that would cause you to actually need to go to data mesh, don't go to data mesh. Don't do it for the sake of doing it. <laughs> Much like distributed systems, people will tell you, don't distribute your systems unless necessary. Don't go to a decentralized data setup if you don't need to. Tim made the very good point, though, that we need more conversations and better guidance on like, how to actually measure and how to think if centralization of your data team and processes is what's actually causing your challenges. Is that becoming the bottleneck or is it something else like your overall culture, your data culture, your architectural setup, your level of, of data literacy, et cetera? So the second pushback was the tooling doesn't exist yet to make doing data mesh easy. We talked about how a big conceptual issue of data mesh is that it has to solve every data problem, even the most difficult, right out of the gate. It's just not true. Tim mentioned that your implementation needs to really think about self-service being empowerment, not necessarily a big red easy button. And your implementation will evolve. It must evolve for this to be successful. Yes, the tooling to make data modeling easy for application developers isn't there yet nor is really the governance tooling. 
The data catalog space is really just starting to emerge here. Data discovery tooling in general, it's all kind of still early days. It wouldn't be bleeding edge if there weren't some bleeding, if there weren't some pain. You're going to cut yourself because this is so forward leaning that if you're doing it now, you kind of have to accept that. If you aren't willing or honestly capable at this point to build a lot of the data mesh plumbing yourself, okay, you can jump in later. It's not like data mesh is leaving the station and you either get on now or you can't ever do data mesh. It's fine to say it's not for us right now and it might be in the future. Number three, there shouldn't be a quote unquote owner of data. Tim made a really good point here on accountability to sharing your data versus the kind of fiefdom thinking. You know, in that fiefdom thinking, someone has complete control over how the data is used. Yes, someone shouldn't be able to prevent other domains from using their data, you know, in general. There might be some governance cases and things like that, but in general, but having that model isn't data mesh anyway, right? It's not what data mesh really uh, ascribes to. So if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Why would you make data reusable and discoverable if people can't use it or discover it? That's putting out a sign that says free cake and then not actually letting people have the cake. Why would you do that? I want the cake. Number four was not enough case studies on data mesh, people doing data mesh well and what's been kind of the results. Tim mentioned this briefly uh, in the episode, but I I fully agree with this one. But if we wait for people to be done with their journeys, it'll probably be another five years. You know, Max Schulze at Zalando is pretty far down the path. They're over two years in, and he said, "Eh, we're about 25% of the way through our journey, right? If you want to wait until there are those those case studies, go ahead. But when you think about data mesh, it's are you an explorer or are you a settler? It's fine to be the settler, but the explorers get the stories told about them. You know, gold rush is probably a bad analogy because of how many people were, were negatively impacted by it. But you know, if there's a rush, do you want to be there first or do you want to get there when everything is settled and there's no longer that kind of big, big value creation there? It's something that you're more easily able to implement, but are you going to see the same kind of returns? Are you going to be that much further ahead of your competitors? It's something to think about. I'm not saying do one or the other. Number five, lacking guidance on exactly how to cross domain data, how to do those those cross-domain data combinations. Tim mentioned that there is the question of how do those combinations get managed? Right now in a data warehouse or a data lake world, there are clear owners, the, the data team. But in data mesh, is that a new you know aggregate domain? Is that a consumer aligned domain? You know, do you have that still on a centralized team like Adavinta is doing? I think this is one of the vague points in data mesh that that is actually intentional. You have to figure this out for yourself. It's situational. There isn't a cookie cutter approach to this. Number six, data mesh will create data silos. Sure, if you have the data mart kind of model concept of old where data is only created only for the domains themselves to use. 80% or so of the guests on the podcast have recommended doing kind of two plus data products 
across different domains as part of your proof of concept. So you understand how to do that interoperability, how to do that. You can build muscle and figure out how to do this, just like the response to kind of push back number five, right? You can learn how to do this. It's not that you have to have everything laid out ahead of time for you. Tim talked about how important iteration and collaboration is to prevent data silos. So much is about the intent to not let it become a problem. And if you really focus on that, it probably won't be. Overall, we agreed on a lot of the pushbacks are probably coming from a place of like where somebody's in an organization where data mesh would create a lot of friction in their existing culture. And and as Tim said, changing culture is very hard and quote unquote, fixing culture is even harder. And as Tim's colleague Juan Cicada mentioned on his episode, data mesh is often an exercise in finding where you should fall on the centralization, decentralization spectrum for a whole lot of different decisions right? There isn't that cookie cutter approach and people have to be kind of comfortable with that if they're going to try and implement. Tim talked about how we too often think about data implementations, whether macro at something like even the data mesh implementation level or something more micro like at a data product level as as a singular event, something that's once going to happen and that doesn't evolve. You know, data implementations aren't a house. They're much more like a garden. Seasons change. You might have to weed a little bit or a lot, (laughs) some of the places I've been, you might even change what the focus of your garden is. Are you sick of zucchini? Is this data product or this report slash dashboard no no longer relevant, right? Think about that as something that that is not just a one-off and that this can't ever evolve. Set yourself up for that evolution as you learn so that it can improve. We transitioned into the data product ABCs framework that Tim and the team at data.world put together. There's a link in the show notes. An important aspect of this framework is that like much of data mesh, it isn't about providing specific answers, but more the questions you must answer for your situation to get to a good outcome. A key point Tim made at the end was just how many data challenges come from implicit expectations and knowledge, you know, versus getting very explicit to make sure everybody is on the same page. You know, Tim basically summed it up in kind of a way of get in the room, negotiate, come to a conclusion and shake hands, and then document it so that it's not implicit for anyone that there is an explicit documentation of of what you're trying to accomplish. So the ABC's framework for data products. A is for accountability. Who owns the data product? And what does ownership specifically mean? B is for boundaries. What what is a data product? What interfaces does it use? And and crucially, what isn't a data product? And and also, what isn't part of a specific data product? What are the very specific boundaries around data products in general? And then what are the specific boundaries around each one? C is for contracts. What are the explicit expectations? Who can use it? What are the SLAs? You know, we've talked about data contracts a lot on this podcast. Abe Gong mentioned in his episode number 65, how often these contracts at least start as implicit. Let's get to communicating and negotiating and and really get this too explicit. D is for downstream. Who actually uses the data product? Who might want to use it? and, And kind of why are they using it? And why might they want to use it? What is the roadmap? 
E is for explicit knowledge, partially because A, B, C, D, K doesn't sound as good. <laughs> exactly what we've been discussing in this you know, entire episode, don't, don't believe your, your data products are self-describing. Document things, explain what, what are the relationships to other data products or concepts outside the data product. Really get explicit. Put that down so people can be on the same page. So many of our challenges are, again, because of implicit expectations or knowledge. Get it down so people can understand it and can collaborate more effectively. And, and even if they don't get it immediately from the documentation or, or whatever, they can get to the right person who does and they, they can ask much better questions. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Paul Andrew, technical architect at Avenade and Microsoft Data Platform MVP. Paul started by sharing his views of the chicken and egg problem of how much do you build out your data platform and, and when to support your data product creation and, and ongoing operations. Is that once you've you know, built a few different data products out and then you start to build out your platform? Do you build it before? How complex do you build out your platform depending on where you are in your data mesh data product journey? And how that discussion becomes even more complicated in a brownfield deployment that already has existing requirements, expectations, and some templates. For Paul, delivering a single data mesh data product on its own is not all that valuable. If you're going to go to the expense of implementing data mesh, you need to be able to satisfy use cases that cross domains. And the greater value is in cross domain interoperability, getting to a data product that really wasn't possible before because you're combining data across multiple domains. And you need to deliver the data platform alongside those first two to three data products. Otherwise, you create a very hard to support data asset, not really a data product in Paul's view. When thinking about minimum viable data mesh, Paul views an approach leveraging DevOps and generally CICD or continuous integration, continuous delivery as very crucial. You need that repeatability slash reproducibility to really call something a data product. We've learned that from the software side of the world as well. In a brownfield deployment, Paul sees leveraging existing templates for security, infrastructure as code, and, and all of that as the best path forward. Supplement what you've already built to make it usable for your new approach with data mesh. You've already built out your security and compliance model. Make it into that infrastructure as code to really reduce the friction for new data products and, and make it so that it's easy for scalability. For Paul, being disciplined early in your data mesh journey is key. A proof of concept for data mesh is often only focused on really the data set or the table or the view itself, not actually generating a data product and much less a minimum viable data mesh. It's pretty easy to put yourself in a very bad spot by going down that proof of concept of only going for a, a data set or a table because 
taking that from proof of concept to actual production, it's going to be a very hard transition. And telling users it will take weeks to months to productionalize, it's probably not going to go well. You've already created the data. What do you mean it's going to take that long to really make this into an actual viable data product? So be disciplined to go far enough to test out a minimum viable data mesh instead of just doing a simple proof of concept. Paul emphasized the need for pragmatism in most aspects when implementing a data mesh. Really think about when to take on tech debt and do so with intention. When shouldn't we take on tech debt? And we really should focus on technical purity. And how do we pay down tech debt and and when? There's always going to be that balance between getting it done now and kind of getting it with kind of getting it done dirty and, and that technical purity aspect. How do we choose what features to sacrifice? What is the time value to money aspect or how much importance do we have on getting it done sooner rather than more completely? These are questions you'll ask repeatedly in in a data mesh implementation. Similar to what previous guests mentioned, Paul is working to encourage the data product marketing and discovery process. Discussing with data consumers what they want, you know, kind of that pie in the sky thinking, what, what would you want if you could get everything you wanted? then taking kind of what people are are looking for and speaking with the data producers and figuring out, you know, kind of what's pragmatic there, what's a pragmatic approach and and what aspect of this data product might be super difficult. If that one aspect is going to be super difficult, do you go to the consumers and you let them know that that part of it will delay significantly their delivery and, and that they also need to fund that part of it? Do they still want that specific aspect? Use that back and forth discussion to drive negotiations to a valuable solution with less effort on on everybody's part. Look for that return on investment, not just return. You know, wouldn't it be great if we had these 20 different pieces of this data product? Well, number 20 of those 20 pieces is is 80% of the work. Do you really need that? (laughs) Be pragmatic. Paul recommends making business value your general data mesh North Star. Ask the pragmatic questions. So shift the data function from taking requests or requirements to negotiation. Have the conversation of, is this worth it? Who is going to pay for it? What is it worth worth to them? As of now, Paul and his team, uh, when they're in a consulting engagement, are still often functioning as that kind of translator between data producers and data consumers. But when discussing that goal of getting out of being that middleman slash translator type of role, Paul pointed to a few signs that an organization is ready for producers and consumers to directly work with each other. Some aspects are, you know, kind of what's the general company culture? Is it one that is super, super siloed or or not? How data literate and, and capable are the execs so that they can really understand um, what they're really trying to drive towards and data platform maturity and, and a few other aspects. If you can mature your organization's approach and skill level, you can move towards not needing to have that data translator. Paul talked about how to think about your data mesh journey and different elements of it, even a data product, in that kind of crawl, walk, run fashion. Think about your data products first and foremost as serving at least one specific purpose, answering kind of one specific question. Still create 
those data products with reuse in mind, but they should have a use case to serve and, and you can expand it from there. At a mesh level, crawling might be getting to a few standard interfaces for data products to use to communicate. You know, that's not going to be the full mesh level, but that's important to get there from a crawl standpoint. And then when you think about walking, it might be having more interfaces and that there's easy to use reusable blocks that you can just drop into your data product. At the data platform level, a crawl aspect might be getting to a place where it is pub possible to publish new data sets, but walking might be a significant reduction in friction to that producing those new data products. While this all means that a minimum viable mesh is still a pretty high bar, you can get to a place that is comfortable with being at that crawling stage and understanding that you're going to get to the walk and that you're going to get to the run, and it gives you a more simple target for where you want to get to first and that you can really figure out what what you really, really need. We've talked about this in, in previous episodes too, figuring out what you really need rather than trying to build it ahead of time when you don't know your real needs and, and kind of thinking of it in that data field of dreams of, you know, if we build it, they will come. And if we build it, it will create value. And it's like, you, you really need to have those conversations first and figure out what you're really trying to accomplish. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. 